Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you again. Thanks for joining us this morning for worship here at the Vista. Um, I want to just kind of say we're very grateful for uh, Jared and Amy uh, leading us in worship this morning. Uh, Jordan is out this week. He'll be back next week. But I'm always reminded of all the just talented people we have in our church that can step in and lead. Uh, and so we are grateful for them. And really, our whole band, uh, our band is, well, they're good. They're just really good. So we're certainly grateful. Absolutely. <laughs> grateful for, for all of them. Uh, this week, we are in the fifth week of our series, Long Live the Revolution. We're looking at the book of Acts together for these nine weeks. We're about halfway through that. Austin and I are walking through the book of Acts, and essentially, Acts is all about the birth of Christianity. It's about the beginning of this, of this movement, this revolution, uh, specifically talking about the church. Uh, God's instrument for reaching a broken and a hurting world is the church, despite all of its faults and its flaws over the years it is still God's instrument in our world to do that. And so we get to be a part of that. Um, I'm reminded, and just something I want to kind of say as we get going, uh, yesterday I attended the funeral of a friend of mine, a uh, longtime pastor at Temple Bible Church, Gary DeSalvo. And as I sat there in the funeral uh, at TBC looking around and seeing some old friends, I'm just reminded that, you know, in the business world, when uh, there's someone else in the community that does what you do, they are your competition, right? Like they're, you're trying to outsell them or outperform them or, or, or whatever. But in the church world, uh, that's not how it works, right? In the church world, uh, they're not our competition. They're our partners. Other Bible-believing, gospel-centered churches, um, we have the same mission. We worship the same king um, at the end of the day. And so I sat there in that, in that beautiful ceremony celebrating Gary's uh, life and um, his ministry there at TBC. He's done a lot for our community. And I was just grateful for the church as a whole. It's not just about the vista. It's about all of God's redeemed people uh, working together with that common mission, that common goal. And I want to just encourage our, our vista family to be praying for the TBC family. Uh, Gary pastored there for almost 40 years. That is rare in our, in our, our day. Um, honestly, pastors move around a lot more and for someone to be there for 40 years uh, really is quite remarkable. And so their church over the days, weeks, and months ahead will be going through a lot of just newness, transition, and change. And so we want to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters over at TBC. If I can just encourage you guys to do that, I know that they would greatly appreciate it, all right? Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15 this morning. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Acts 15. We're going to look at a very important council called the Jerusalem Council. Throughout the history of the church, there have been some councils that have met or convened to decide some really important matters theologically and doctrinally for the church. Often out of those councils will come a creed. Uh, you might have heard of some of these, the Nicene Creed. You might have heard of some of these creeds that come out of that. And that is the statement of faith that they, uh, the resolution, if you will, that they decide at the council. Uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is the very first one of the councils. And essentially, they are, uh, they are trying to decide what uh, the essence of salvation, what is required for salvation. This is a very important, pivotal chapter in the book of Acts and for the church moving forward. So I'll catch you up there before we jump into Acts 15. Last week, we talked about a guy named Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Stephen was the first martyr that we find in the book of Acts, the first one to die, to give up his life for his faith in Christ. 
Um, and if you remember, it says that as they were stoning Stephen, the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Their outer garment, they, they laid them down at the feet of this guy named Saul, who was leading in the persecution of Stephen, leading out in this persecution. It also says that in the beginning of chapter 8, that after the death of Stephen, a heavy persecution came upon the church, and they were all scattered. So the church goes from just being this Jerusalem thing to going outside of Jerusalem into the region of Judea and Samaria. Interesting that God uses persecution to spread the gospel. There's a whole sermon in that that we're not going to have time to get to today, but essentially, you know, it's not always about our comfort, right? It's not always about kind of, uh, you know, again, everything being easy and nice for us. Again, it's, it's about the glory and the mission of God. Persecution comes on the church. They are spread. The gospel goes with them. And then this guy named Saul in Acts chapter 9 he meets God. This, this Pharisee of Pharisees who, was, um, who hated Jesus, he hated the gospel, he meets God on the road to Damascus. God gets a hold of his life, changes his name to Paul, and he becomes this um, unbelievably passionate guy about the gospel. He becomes this missionary, this church planter, wanting to do everything he can to spread the gospel story. It's a beautiful picture of how God can change anyone's heart, right? That's Acts chapter 9. Well, then in Acts chapter 13 and 14, you have the very first missionary journey. Paul and his friend Barnabas, they go out to spread the gospel specifically to Gentiles. Gentiles, non-Jews. That's, that's us, right? The, the, the Gentile, uh, this is the first time the gospel had really gone to the Gentiles. So Gentiles are beginning to place their faith in Jesus. They're beginning to, uh, to, to believe in Christ and his finished work at the cross for them. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit then falls on the Gentiles, just like it had the Jews. And so what happens now is you have some in the church that are going, okay, it's great that they believe in Jesus, but what else do they need in order to be saved? I mean, Jesus is great. Faith in Jesus is great, but, but what else is required? Is it, is it just Jesus, or is it Jesus plus something else? That is what they're discussing at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So we'll jump in. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. Here's what happens. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. They declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So essentially what they're asking is this. They're saying, listen, this Christianity thing that's just getting, getting started, it was birthed out of Judaism. All the disciples were Jewish. And so these are guys that had spent their, their whole upbringing following the Mosaic law to the best of their ability. Circumcision was a really big part of following the Mosaic law. It was an absolute necessity, an absolute requirement. So now you have all these Gentiles that are placing their faith in Jesus, and, uh, and they're kind of going, now what do we do with all the Gentiles? I mean, is, is faith in Jesus all they really need, or... Or do they need, they need something else? They need to really follow the law. And so there are some that then pose, the, that basically state, 
if they're going to be Christians, they have to follow the Mosaic law just like we do. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to kind of, uh, first, they've got to be Jewish, if you will, before they can really follow Jesus. Now, this is really weird to us because we're like, really? Circumcision? Like, that's your barometer? I mean, how do you even check that, right? Do you have like a booth set up in the foyer? You're like, all right, lift it up. Like, I don't, I don't even know how that works, right? That's just, that's a strange thing, right? And, and listen, again, this is a big deal because be reminded that like, it's one thing to be circumcised as like an infant, but you're talking about men in their 30s, 40s, 50s that are coming to know Christ. If, if that's me, I'm like, hard pass, man. I'll just catch the podcast, right? Like, I don't... I don't need to be in the club that bad, right? Like, that's a, this is a, they're, they're talking about the essence of salvation. What is going to be required for salvation? And so there's some sharp disagreement, as it says, some very sharp disagreement. And then I went over this text this week in our staff meeting with our staff, and, and I told them, like, one verse that just really stands out to me that I've never really caught before. I've read through Acts dozens of times, and I've, I've never really caught this before, but it was really interesting. In verse 5, it says, but some believers... Believers, so these are guys that believe in Jesus, they place their faith in Jesus, who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Did you catch that? Believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, if you've read the Gospels, the Pharisees, they sort of get a bad rap, don't they? I mean, they're, the, they're kind of the bad guys of the story. They're the self-righteous, like, they look down their noses at everyone. They, they think they're better than everyone, you know. They, they judge everyone for not being as good and holy and pious as they are. They're the grace killers, if you will, right? The Pharisees don't extend grace to anybody. They're the grace killers. And then what happens is, as some of the Pharisees hear the gospel, they place their faith in Christ, so the grace killers are themselves recipients of grace, Grace killers are themselves recipients of grace. The grace killers need the grace of Jesus as much as anybody else. And then they have a hard time sort of flipping the switch to extend grace to everyone else. Did you catch that? They've been taught their whole lives, follow the law, follow the law, follow the law. You've got to do all this stuff to be saved. And then there's the beautiful gospel story that Jesus has already done everything we need for salvation. And they're like, yay, they receive grace. But then the very first thing is to not extend that grace to others. Isn't that so much like us? Isn't that so much like us? Like many of you, I grew up in church. My testimony is kind of boring. It just is, right? Kind of boring. I was never strung out on like drugs and alcohol or, you know, super rebellious as a kid. And what happens so many times for those that grow up in that kind of environment is you start to think that you're better than others that go through some of that stuff. You start to think that maybe it didn't take as much grace to save you as it did to save someone else. You start to think, well, like a Pharisee. You know, you start to think like a Pharisee. I used to think that I had a pretty boring testimony and, you know, other people had these awesome testimonies. And then I started, you know, going, well, as boring as it is, that's kind of the testimony I pray my kids have, right? Like, I pray my kids have a boring testimony. I don't want them to have to be, you know, strung out on different things to, in order to meet God. But that was me. That was me. And, and again, it, God just kind of showed me the fact that, you know, Dave, you need as much grace to save you as anybody else. It didn't take somehow less grace to save you than it does to save someone else. The grace killers need grace. Maybe you know someone in your life that's sort of like this, right? 
maybe they annoy you, maybe they bother you, maybe they're like good all the time and they're, they're sort of judgmental and just be reminded that the grace killers, they need grace as well. They need grace as well. The Pharisees needed grace. But then they can't just flip the switch, right? They can't just flip the switch. It's hard for them. It's like anybody else that struggles with anything. Whatever that thing is that you struggle with, maybe it is alcohol or drugs or pornography or gossip or uh, materialism, whatever the, 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 the thing is in your life that you really struggle with, let's be honest, it's hard just to flip the switch and all of a sudden not struggle with that stuff anymore, right? That's difficult. Well, it's no different for the Pharisees. They've been told this their whole lives and they meet Jesus, but now they can't just flip the switch. And so their first response is to respond with a lack of grace. No, 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 no. They've got to be like this in order to be saved. So this is the big issue of the Jerusalem council. What is going to be required for salvation? Is it just Jesus or is it Jesus plus something else? And I would tell you this is such a relevant topic for the church today because thousands of years later, this is still something the church wrestles with when it comes to salvation, we are always so prone to add something, to, to feel the need to add something to the work of Christ. For some, it's Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus the manifestation or the display of some specific spiritual gift. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus whatever. And at the end of the day, we'll see what Peter has to say in a moment that it's not Jesus plus anything, it's just Jesus. It's just the grace of Jesus. So verse seven says, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made, me a, uh, made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I love this. This is Peter, Jewish, right? He stands up in the midst of all of them. And here's what he says. He basically says, guys, none of us live up to the law. You may think you do. You may think you've done a pretty good job, but he essentially says, all of us fail when it comes to keeping the law, right? We all fail. Like, the, there are over 600 different laws. Even if you just take the Ten Commandments, if you just take 10 of them, which are basically like morality 101, right? It's just basic, simple morality. Truth be told, we all fail, don't we? We all fail. I mean, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Sometimes I have other idols, honor your father and your mother eh, most of the time maybe don't lie guilty right don't covet your neighbor's stuff oops right like if we just go through the ten commandments if we're honest we all fail at just keeping the basic simple law so peter stands up in this whole assembly of these pharisees and these super self-righteous guys and he's like guys our fathers couldn't keep the law we can't keep the law. So if we can't do it, why on earth would we add that stuff to the requirement for salvation? Why put the yoke on them that we can't even hold, right? And then the last, verse 11 is, is the last words of Peter anywhere in the book of Acts. This is the very last thing Peter says in the book of Acts. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace 
of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And then all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and to Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among boy to be able to share that. And in order to do that, because it's not normal, we have to build habits and patterns in our lives where we can give regularly and consistently, even when it's not comfortable to do so. That is why the Old Testament, there's this law. It was the law of tithing that was set up in the Old Testament. And the whole purpose of that law was to build and instill in God's people regular habits and patterns where they could practice generosity and giving, whether they felt like it or not, whether they had plenty or they were struggling, there was, you were to tithe, you were to give this 10%, whether you had little or had much or no matter what, because what happens is if we don't do something like that, if God's people didn't do that and just left to their own, they wouldn't give regularly or consistently. They would give when they had plenty only, when they, when they felt like it, when it was comfortable or easier, when they had some left over, then they would probably give, but they wouldn't build regular habits and patterns of regular generosity. Now, to be clear, Jesus came to fulfill the law. So I'm not here to preach the Old Testament law of tithing to you. I'm not here to declare you all need to give your 10%. Like, we're not under the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. And so we don't get to pick and choose which parts of the law we're still under and which ones we're not. That being said, the Old Testament principle of tithing is still um, a really good principle because it helps you build a regular habit or pattern of consistent generosity in your life, whether you feel like it or not. We did some studying, uh, one of our elders actually brought this up this past year. We're thinking about budget and and all that we're, you know, we got this new building and paying for that and all the missional stuff that we really want to do. And so we're thinking about our budget and we've always budgeted very conservatively. And so we're kind of figuring out how we can make things work. And he said, you know, I did some math and there are 3,500 people that call Vista their home church. So um, that is members and those that we would say are regular, regular attenders. Maybe they haven't walked through the class yet. Um, and he said, what's interesting is 3,500, that's a lot. Uh, we see that on Easter when all of you decide to show up at the same time, right? Um, we have 4,000 people in the Expo Center, but um, 3,500 people, if those 3,500 people that called Vista home all lived at the poverty line, if all of us lived at the poverty line, that's all, and gave just 10%, we would more than double our church budget. No problem at all. We'd pay for this building in no time and we would be, I mean, it's... There's no limit to the stuff that we could do. That's if everybody just lived at the poverty line and gave 10%. I realize that for some of you, for many in our church, 10% is not something they can do, not something that they're, especially when you're getting started, it seems like this big leap. And so I also realize though that most of our church, most don't, don't live at the poverty line, right? And so it's just fascinating when you think about what we could do as a church if more than about 50% of our members actively, regularly, consistently built habits and patterns and tendencies into their life where they gave. And so this year, when it comes to serving and giving, I realize those are not normal, natural things. We have to fight against uh, what is normal and natural if we're going to live the way of Jesus and build the kingdom of God together. And so we're gonna challenge you to lean into that and to do that this year. Austin's going to come now and talk to us a little bit about worship and connection. Yeah, so when most of us think of church, I would assume if you're like me, we, we tend to think of this weekly communal gathering for worship that you're a part of right now that has defined 
Christian faith from the very, very, very beginning. Uh, and as we mention quite often throughout the year, uh, following Jesus is about a lot more than an hour spent worshiping on Sunday mornings. Uh, and yet that said, while following Jesus is about a lot more than an hour spent uh, worshiping on Sunday mornings, uh, an hour spent worshiping on Sunday mornings has always been and will always be an essential part of following Jesus. Because weekly communal worship throughout Christian history has exhibited this unparalleled capacity to form us in Christ's likeness and energize us for mission. In other words, following Jesus is about more than weekly communal worship, but it ain't about less than it, right? It's a very, very important part of it. And so why is that? Why does gathering together to sing, to study, to pray, to confess our sins, to receive communion together, what is it about that that creates this mysterious powerful energy that we all feel. Well, in his really short novel, The Little Prince, the author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry offers this uh, advice on shipbuilding that is the best explanation for the mysterious power of worship that I've ever come across. Okay, here's what he says. He says, if you want to build a ship, and who does it? Uh, Don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them task and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of of the sea. If you want people to build a ship, you don't drum them up to collect wood and you don't assign them task and work, but you teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. In other words, if you want to motivate people to do something, in this case, build you a ship, then you don't just start giving them a bunch of chores to do. You know, you collect wood, you nail together boards, you don't start lecturing them about the importance of shipbuilding to the local economy. No, if you want people to build you a ship, here's what you do you take them to the edge of the ocean. You let them see the infinite blue horizon. You let them hear the roaring of the ocean swells. You let them feel the gentle but terrifying tug of the tide around their ankles. Take people to the edge of the ocean, show it to them, and let it grab them, and it will. And they'll build you a ship you won't even have to ask. Because they long for the endless immensity of the sea. And the mysterious power of worship is that once a week we stop collecting wood, we stop nailing together boards and drawing up blueprints, we slow down and we walk to the edge of the ocean together as a church family. We see the beauty, we hear the voice, we feel the presence of the living God. Now, if you're a member or regular attender here at the Vista, one of the things that you have promised to do, covenanted to do, is be here for worship every single Sunday that you're in town, okay? And I know you got stuff to do. Trust me, I got stuff to do too, you know? Uh, I know you got responsibilities and family and sports and commitments. I know, but, but you've also made a commitment that supersedes all those commitments. And that's a commitment to be here weekly with your church family so that we can walk to the edge of the ocean Together, and again, none of this is about guilt or shame or pressure. It's none of that. It's about knowing that you need it, that you need to slow down and walk to the edge of the ocean with your church family. So that's worship. And now let's talk briefly about connect. If you're a part of our family here at Vista, you have promised to connect and follow Jesus with a smaller group of people because that is, has been, and will always be an essential note that our divisiveness hasn't really gone away No, it's merely migrated away from race and toward politics. Because now, 55% of Americans say they would have a problem with their child entering into an interpolitical marriage. 
You believe that? Absolutely you can believe it. Right, so whereas used to, we all had a problem with interracial marriage. You would say, no daughter of mine is ever going to marry a white man. No daughter of mine is ever going to marry a black man. Now we say, no daughter of mine is ever going to marry a Republican. No daughter of mine is ever going to marry a Democrat. Sweetheart, I love you, but if you marry a liberal, then you are out and don't come back for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and we, uh, we have an election coming up, as I understand it, a few months. And it's going to be the most divisive election in modern American history, hands down. Which means, church, that we have a remarkable opportunity probably once in a generation opportunity to show an angry bickering culture the peaceable unifying way of Jesus the Messiah and so church are we going to take that opportunity to show the world a different way I hope so I'll be watching your Facebook feeds very closely okay I hope we do take it but I'm going to be watching a couple Saturdays ago we were uh, at the house and um, we were just all in a bad mood. You ever have one of those days? Even the dog was in a bad mood. You know, uh, Allison and I, we got in the biggest fight of our marriage over where we were going to go eat brunch. It was one of those. This is one of those fights where you're like, you know, I just don't know if this is going to work. Christian beliefs, right? So when the closed hand goes stuff like the substitutionary atonement of Jesus at the cross for our sin, there is no other way to salvation, no other way to heaven but by him. That's not something we can really budge on, right? That's just, that's pretty much, if you don't believe that, then you're not Christian. The, the doctrine of the, of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son. Venting things to fight over. We finally got up off the couch, went on a hike, and the most remarkable thing happened. We stopped fighting. It was an act of God. The Red Sea parted again. In fact, we went on a four-hour-long hike with a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And we never got in a single fight. And why do you think that was? That's pretty simple, right? We didn't fight because we had better things to do than fight. Now, we, had, uh, we had rocks to throw in the creek. We threw like a, a million rocks in the creek. There are no rocks left. <laughs> we, had to catch, uh, we had to catch some frogs and chase mom with them. And we had to explore caves. And when you've got fun, important stuff like that to do, you just don't have time to fight over brunch and pillows. And so, church, here's the deal. If we don't have better things to do than pick silly, self-righteous fights with each other, then we've got better things to do. You follow me? If we don't have better things to do than pick fights with each other, then we've got better things to do. We just don't know it yet. And so when that fake, deep, self-righteous divisiveness sets in to our lives, into our families, into our church, it's because we don't have a big, beautiful sense of mission. It's because we're sitting on the couch. Back, close-handed, the Bible says it, right? What that's going to look like at the end of, I don't know and you don't either, right? So why do we need to spend a bunch of time debating and arguing about different philosophies and views? For us, that's open-handed. It's open-handed. There's matters that are practical, you know, style and culture and dress and some of that stuff. It all goes in the open hand. Listen, if you want to wear a suit to the Vista because that's what you feel, that's the way you feel like you ought to come to church, you know, wear the suit. I will not be wearing one, right? But you are welcome to do that, right? 
you're welcome to do that. There's a lot of stuff that goes in our open hand. So we have to decide what goes in the closed, what goes in the open hand. And here's what happens is sometimes when you get your really fundamentalist churches, they generally have two closed hands, right? They have two closed hands. It's like, love Jesus and do it like this, or you're wrong. Austin says it this way in our Discover the Vista class. They have two closed fists and they like to punch you in the face with them, right? That's, that's what happens with the fundamentalist churches. But then you get your liberal churches and the more liberal, then you have two open hands, right? Then it's like, everybody's loved, welcomed, wanted, come as you are, that's all great. That's an environment we love. But if you, then it's like, you know, what you believe is also kind of up in the air. It's may not really, you know, we can have discussions around everything. And, and then you fail to be the church. You're a really welcoming and inviting social organization but you're not the church. And so the challenge has always been a closed hand and an open hand. And so we work really hard here to maintain that. And again, that brings me to my last point, that unity means love despite your differences. It's not washing away or sweeping under the rug all the differences. It's learning to love one another in spite of your differences. It's learning to love one another despite the fact that you are going to have a lot of things in your open hand that you don't necessarily see eye to eye on. And Austin and I have really tried to model this here at the Vista because, I mean, some of you already know this. If you know either one of us very well at all, there's a whole lot of stuff in the open hand that we don't agree on. We actually come at it from very different points of view. But listen, we want to model unity and love for brothers and sisters in Christ that says, listen, you don't have to think just like I do on everything. Our unity is in Christ. Our unity is found in Christ. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that's enough to bring us together in unity and love. And it's a picture to the rest of the community and the rest of the world of what it means to find unity in Christ and love one another deeply. In Acts 15, such a pivotal chapter because ultimately they came out of this thing saying, no, 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 we're not gonna let all this secondary stuff divide the movement. We're not going to let all the secondary stuff stop the revolution. God is doing something in the hearts and lives of people. So we don't need to argue about stuff that's really not essential and not a hill to die on. We need to have unity together in Christ. And that's our hope. That's our prayer. That's our vision. That's our goal for our church. Let's pray together. Father, we are... um, God, we're so thankful for the diversity that you bring to the church. God, we're just grateful that we're not all alike. We're not all alike. That you bring people together from different walks of life, different cultures, different races, different socioeconomic status, different political points of view. God, you bring people together that would otherwise never get in a room together. But God, it is... Jesus, who brings these people together, and that is where we find our unity. So God, I pray that we would always be a church that finds our unity in Christ, that we would not get caught arguing and and fighting over non-essential, open-handed stuff where Satan just tries to distract us and, and get us off of our mission. Lord, I pray today for, God, all of us as a church to remember that it is the grace of Jesus alone that saves us. It is not about our self-righteousness and how good we can be.